ZPC. Apparently, my microphone was on earlier, so I already said hello to you. Um, but I will say hello again to you on this uh, beautiful day. Um, before we begin, I just want to let you know that yesterday and Friday, uh, we uh, Superstart uh, was going on. So a lot of our, um, our next-gen uh, kids, where we can see some of these pictures, were... Uh, out and about, as you can see, very eager, lifting their hands up and learning about discipleship and following God and being together uh, and even eating at Greeks, apparently, at Greeks. So, uh, but a great time. And, you know, I'm so proud of our next gen team that is always kind of out there and um, asking these questions about how we can continue to pour into um, our covenant children and just what a great gift it is to be a part of a congregation that does that. So thank you for that and thank you to all of our staff and volunteers who do so much work with them. You know, um, I, wanted to, I wanted to say Friday morning I was kind of out on a long walk and I, I was just thinking about the gift it was to be able to, or it is, to be able to really dig into Scripture. Uh, and I want to thank you all for giving uh, people like me and Pastor Scott that opportunity. Uh, it really is a remarkable gift to be able to just wrestle with Scripture, uh, and you all give us that opportunity. And, and you always you may not always like where I go or how long it takes me to get there, um, but it really is just an incredible opportunity that we have. So I wanted to begin by just thanking you for that. Um, and it's been a challenge to kind of look at this text today and ask what the Lord would have us to learn. But, um, but let's kind of go through this together and see exactly where God is going to take us. Let me warn you again, like I've said before, this is going to be a little bit lengthy passage um, as we continue to march towards uh, the end of Luke. And so with that, we're going to look at chapter 21, verses 5 through 38. Here's what Luke says. When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. They asked him, teacher, when will this be and what will be the sign that this is about to take place? And he said, beware that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and plagues, and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. And this will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and siblings, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls." When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those inside the city must leave it, and those out in the country must not enter it. 
For these are the days of vengeance as a fulfillment of all that is written. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress on the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be taken away as captives among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled on by the nations until the times of the nations are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth, distress amongst nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is to come upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with a power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life, and that day does not catch you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all who live on the face of the whole earth. Be alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Every day he was teaching in the temple. And at night he would go out and spend the night on the Mount of Olives, as it was called, and all the people would get up early in the morning to listen to him in the temple. And Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Be with us, God. Speak to us through these words that are difficult and complex that we might take from it, Lord, the seed that you would long to plant in our hearts. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So Jesus, ever since he got to Jerusalem, is spending a lot of time in the temple. And this temple is clearly a pretty impressive edifice. John Gable talked about this a little bit last week about just how remarkable this temple was. It was around 100 feet, uh, 150 feet tall. And, um, and, and Josephus, the historian, says that because of the fact that it was all plated with gold, that when the sun would come up in the morning, that people would have to shield their eyes lest they go blind. This is the kind of remarkable temple. Remember, John was talking about how the foundations were bigger than this window, the stones that were under there. It was incredible. And the disciples were very impressed, it seems, by this temple. And Jesus takes all of this impressiveness and all of the disciples Googling over everything that was there. And how does he respond? He says this, as for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown What is Jesus doing here? Well, my initial thought is that what Jesus is doing is what uh, my wife Megan oftentimes called yucking someone's yum. 
right? The way that I see this at times, the way that I've done this at times is, you know, people will talk about Hawaii and they'll be like, oh, I love Hawaii. I love the beaches and hearing the waves and the, the sand. It's so wonderful. It's so beautiful. And I'll come in as I've been known to do and say, oh yeah, the sand going everywhere and the, and the sunburn and all that for a mere few thousand dollars. How great. And Megan would say, you're yucking someone's yum. Don't do that. That's just rude. And she's right, I'm sure. So is that what Jesus is doing? They're sitting there looking at this temple. Oh, it's so great. And he's like, oh, my goodness. No, this stinks. It's the worst. I don't think that's just what Jesus is doing, though I do have to say there does seem to be some relish, perhaps, that Jesus has as he begins to talk about what's going to happen in the future. I actually think that what Jesus is doing here is he's concerned. He is concerned with how impressed these disciples are with this physical building. He's concerned, not just that they think it's beautiful, but that likely they are getting some kind of sense of security or safety from just how robust this physical building is. It's much more than just a building for them. They are in some way being made felt, feel safe. And Jesus has grave concerns about that. And so he tells them that, oh, all these stones are going to be cast aside. And I think we get a sense of how this really is a part of what's going on. Because did you hear what the disciples said? They said this, teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign that this is about to take place I don't think this is just a curious question. Hey, I'd love to know because, you know, we've got some stocks. We need to know when we're going to pull back on some of this. I think there is a sense of fear. When is this going to take place? We need to know because we need to get out of here if this is going to happen. And this initiates this remarkably long monologue from Jesus. Just Jesus is speaking. And it's not just a monologue, it is an apocalyptic monologue. Now, by apocalypse, I don't just mean, um, as oftentimes we hear it, just the kind of the, the destruction of the, of the future, of the end of the world. I also mean apocalypse, by its definition, it means revelation. And a part of what Jesus is doing here is he is trying to reveal to the disciples that they are focused on this physical building and likely they are gaining some kind of sense of safety and security and all from this building that is temporary and physical and they need to realize that he is revealing to them that there is so much more than just this world that they are seeing. He is trying to help them to see that there is so much more. It reminds me, perhaps, kind of the, the, the theological text would be 2 Corinthians 4, where it says that, that we are not going to be overwhelmed because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In other words, what Jesus is trying to help them to do is to ask the question, where are you finding your sense of trust and peace and security? Because if it is in this physical building or anything that is physical and temporary, you are going to be in grave trouble. And the truth, of course, is, is that most of us wrestle with this quite a bit. 
Now, in the church, we say the right things, right? We, we, give, we give voice to the sovereignty of God. I believe that God is sovereign, and yet we try and control everything that we possibly can. We give voice to the power of prayer, and yet our anxieties oftentimes reveal that we don't actually believe in prayer all that much. We give voice to the love of God. We really believe in the love of God and grace, and yet we work and do everything we can to kind of to, 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 to succeed so that we believe that this will help us in earning the love of God. We believe in the power of God, and yet at the same time, we spend a lot of time trying to gain as much power as we possibly can. The truth is, let's just be honest, it is much easier for us to trust in things that we can see than in what is unseen. We see this, of course, with, uh, with the Israelites when it comes to uh, uh, when they were fleeing from Egypt and when they were in the wilderness and Moses went up on the mountain. And remember, when they didn't see God, what did they want built? A golden calf. Now, that may make us seem, oh, golden calf, what's wrong with them? They're so dumb, like this is any kind of God. And yet, oftentimes, we fall into that same trap when we begin to think that anything that's physical, that it might give us some sense of hope or security or peace. So what do I mean? What do we do? Here's what's great, is that as Jesus goes on with this monologue, he begins to point out some places where we also might at times go to in order to give us a sense of deep peace and security, places that were never intended to give us that. What does Jesus say at the very beginning there? He says, you know what? Beware. Beware of those who will come in my name and say, I am he. The time is near. It reminded me of when we talked about the book of Jeremiah and we said that there were these prophets. You remember this? The, the, the people of God were in, uh, were in exile in Babylon and they were not happy to be there. They didn't want to be there. None of us would have wanted to be there. They were enslaved. They wanted to be at home. They were not feeling safe. They were not feeling secure. And there were these prophets who were of God, right? And these prophets kept telling them, don't unpack don't even worry about it. You're going to be home soon. You know what? Don't get very comfortable. Don't worry. Soon God's going to deliver and you're going to be back home. And Jeremiah said, no, don't listen to these guys. Stay where you are. Plant. Look out for the betterment of the city. You're not going anywhere. Now, why is it that these people would much have preferred to listen to the other prophets than Jeremiah? Because when you are afraid, when you are uncertain, when you are insecure, what you want is to find somebody who will tell you exactly what you want to hear and who speaks with great certainty. When you feel uncertain, what you want is someone who says, don't worry about it. You may not know what's going on, but I know what's going on. Get on board. I will show you. We are all, especially when we are fearful, we are remarkably susceptible to following someone who tells us that all will be well. Just follow me. And the truth is, what that means is that some of the most dangerous people can oftentimes be pastors. 
Last Sunday, I had a great opportunity to teach our sixth graders, our, our youth inquirers, our confirmands about Presbyterianism. They could not wait. And so I uh, began, and I, and I started talking about our polity and our government um, and the fact that we have elders and that we have 14 elders, and 12 of them are what we call ruling elders, and two of them are teaching elders. Pastor Scott and I are teaching elders, and, uh, and we get that. We, we're called Presbyterian because it comes from the Latin Presbyterius, which means elders. And I mean, at this point, I had them eating out of my hand. But the reason why, I mean, even you guys are like, tell me more, right? No, I don't have time. Next week, maybe. The reason why, I wanted to do that because I wanted to get to the, to the why, which was to talk about our theology. And, and the reason why we do this government-wise is, is for two legs, if you will. The one leg is this, is the priesthood of all believers, right? Which means that it's not just pastors who are gifted by God to do things, all of us, right? It's one of my favorite things, actually, is to talk. And, and, I, and, and, and almost every time I do this, I go around and say, what gifts do you have as a sixth grader? And what ways might you uh, uh, have an opportunity to join up with what God is doing on earth? I love that part of it. But then the second leg is this. The fallenness of humanity. And I have to be honest with them. And I have to say, look, a part of the reason why we have all of these elders is to make sure, is to, to make sure that the pastor does not lead you astray. Is to, and what I'm saying is, is that, look, I can oftentimes get things wrong. It's kind of awkward. Every time I do it, I, it feels like this moment of confession with these sixth graders where I have to admit to them that, you know what? I could lead us astray. I could be a danger if we're not careful. Because we as religious folks are very good oftentimes as pastors. And you know what? Let me be honest with you. Congregation members oftentimes love it in a tumultuous world when you say, this is the answer. I have it. I know what it is. It is easy to just climb on board amidst doubts and fears and insecurities. Part of the reason why I said last week that we are so blessed to have folks like John Gable who preached and Steve Ebling and, and, and Stan, uh, Stan Johnson, these, these kind of savvy veterans, these grizzled pastors, because they are so humble. They're not perfect either, but they are remarkably humble. And in a day, again, of celebrity pastors, I think... Now, you all can't know me, but you're within at least one degree of knowing somebody who knows me pretty well. And that's important. Because when you begin to be under the tutelage of somebody that nobody knows how they actually live, then we are always in danger. And so there is a humility that comes out of this, of knowing that what Jesus says is, look, when times are fearful... Make sure you don't just start following somebody who says he or she is from me and knows all of the answers. And then he goes on. And he says, look, nation will rise against nation. Kingdom will rise against kingdom. Will Williman talks about, as he looks at this, he sees how politics can oftentimes begin to come into play when it comes to our fears and our anxieties. 
So before we get any closer to November, I thought I'd take one more shot at talking about this. Fear. Fear can oftentimes cause us to begin to believe that it is politics and politicians who will actually give us a sense of safety and security. And they know this because they peddle fear. They always have, but they certainly haven't stopped. And we hear this, and, and I, actually, I'm okay. I mean, it's just, it's just the way it is. What I'm not okay with is that when we as followers of Jesus get caught up in that, you see it sometimes, right? You see it, uh, let's say, with the religious left. Let's start there, right? Maybe it's climate change, and you can begin to hear, right? You hear this climate change, and you have, you know, Christians who are saying, oh, it's all coming to an end. And if you don't vote this way in 2024, the earth is going to melt tomorrow. And there is this fear and anxiety, and you can hear it out of these followers of Jesus, and you think, oh, my gosh, we're all going down, or on the religious right. This country is going to hell in a handbasket if you do not vote this way in 2024. It's doomed. It is all over. Move somewhere else now. It's over. Nothing ever gets quieter than when I talk about this. Not even the silence in worship. Now, I want you to hear me. I want you to hear what I'm saying. Again, as I've oftentimes said, I don't mind criticism as long as you're criticizing what I actually say. I am not suggesting that as followers of Jesus, we should not be concerned about the environment by all means. Nor am I suggesting that as followers of Jesus, we should not care about the direction of our country. What I am saying is that there is a very big difference between doing that out of a sense of brokenheartedness or out of a, you know, out of, out of a sense of concern versus out of a sense of absolute anguish and fear and desperate terror. As if you don't know that God exists. Will Williman goes on and he says, look, the only way to do this, he says this, he says, not to be terrified is possible only for those who are convinced that something decisive has happened in the life and death of Christ, that God has entered our world and despite what we do with the world will not desert us. There is no way to think about the future realistically without thinking with faith in the fact of God's loving grasp on the future. We, as followers of Jesus, we work, if it's in politics, great, but we do so as those who know something about the end. We do not do so out of terror. Otherwise, we have no witness to a world that is watching because we seem to believe that it is only through politics that the kingdom of God will ever come on earth as it is in heaven. And that is simply false. I love what one pastor who died not long ago, but he would say this almost every election cycle to his church. He would say, even during the election cycle, God is not biting his fingernails. And if God is not biting his fingernails, why would we? 
Now, the third thing it seems to me that Jesus kind of begins to talk through here as he says, what are those things that you are placing up far too high and trying to think that this is going to give me my safety, my security, my peace? That is not God. One of the things that this passage makes clear is that you know, we as Christians, we're going to have struggles. We're going to be in pain, and that includes physical. There's a lot of physical language that goes on here in this passage. And as Robert Hoke says, you know what, sometimes that might be that, like at the end, you know, in the midst of wars and battles, just as this apocalyptic reading is describing. But sometimes, for, for most of us, it seems to me more of just even in our own kind of mini apocalypse, if you will, in the ways in which our physical bodies even, that we can oftentimes trust in that they too will let us down. Janice Jean Springer wrote this uh, pretty remarkable article where she describes what happened when she began to battle Parkinson's disease. She said that she endured many losses in the midst of that. Losses including her self-image as a strong and vibrant woman, her trust in her body to do what she wanted it to do, her trust in her brain that it would control what it was supposed to control. But the most painful loss, she said, was the loss of her illusions. Here's what she writes. She says, I've lost the illusion that I am exempt from the losses and limits that besiege other people. I've lost the illusion that I am in control. I've lost the illusion that if I just do it all right, it will be all right. The verbiage that I've oftentimes heard people use when they've talked to me and they are enduring some kind of difficult physical body or physical uh, issue is, I feel like my body has betrayed you see, a lot of times we kind of think, especially when we are younger, of course, and understandably so, we think this is going to be the way and my body, surely it won't betray me. It's going to be there. So when, when, even when everything else goes awry, I'm going to physically be okay. And we live in this illusion. But what Springer says is that what she has begun to discover over the years as she's battled this Parkinson's is that, is that actually it can begin to deepen one's faith as those illusions, right, begin to part ways. And the reality, it reveals herself, apocalypse, it reveals to herself, no, 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 this, even this will crumble. And she says, what's happened is that now my limited body has come alongside the unlimited God. And we have now been able to go on this journey that I never could have envisioned otherwise. Our eyesight, our eyesight can easily become diminished to where we do not see what is actually there. And a lot of times, the only, the only moments when we realize this is in moments of fear. When's it all going to happen? What's going to happen? Ambiguity. And a part of the question is this. If you're wondering, well, where am I, is to ask yourself this. Nobody can answer this question but you. When you are afraid to, where do you run? What's the first thing that you run to? Is it, is it to, to a pastor? To somebody who says, I've got all the answers. Just come here. I'll figure this out for you. Is it to a politician? Is it to your bank account? Is it to WebMD? 
Is it to alcohol or food? What is your initial thought? Where do you, where do you run? Because this will begin to help you to see upon what is your body really built? Upon where are you finding these places of hope? And that, again, that doesn't mean you should never go see a doctor or never vote or never listen to a pastor. By no means. It simply means that if they are your greatest hope, then you are asking those things to do something they were never intended to do. But I also think that we see in this passage an opportunity not just to wait until everything seems apocalyptic in our lives, but also to begin to prepare ourselves for this. Fred Craddock asked the question, he says, you know what, if, if, if this is all true, like what are we supposed to do? We just going to give up? We just say, well, it doesn't matter? Or we just go into despair because we think, oh, it's all over? And he says, no. Now, he uses the word eschatological, but it basically is saying the same thing. Here's what Craddock says. He says, eschatological thinking is vital to faithful conduct and to hope which resists cynicism. There will be an end to life as it now is, an end that comes as both judgment and redemption. Whether we go or he comes, personal theological preferences do not alter eschatology, the end time. And contemplation of that fact should have some sanctifying influence. Such thinking should keep our souls athletically trim, free of the weight of the excessive and useless. Such thinking should aid us in keeping gains and losses and proper perspective. When you begin to think that what's around us physically is going to give us hope and security, here's what happens. You are constantly up and down. It's based off of how's the election going? How are my finances doing? How did that last WebMD search go? How am I feeling after that last drink? What's going on? It just keeps going back and forth. Your life will never be safe and secure. Now, that doesn't mean that your life will always be perfect when you follow Jesus. By no means. But when you are attached to what is going on around you, that is temporary, and that is your greatest hope, then you are in trouble. How does, how does Jesus describe this? Jesus describes this as this. He says, be on guard so that your hearts are not, I want you to hear this word, weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life. How are we being weighed down by all of these other things in which we are putting our hope and our trust? When I, um, when I travel, I like to take a lot of stuff. Uh, I mean, a lot of stuff. And the reason is this, it's very clear, because uh, I am scared to death. I'm going to get someplace far from home and be like, oh, I should have packed that eighth outfit for this three-day trip that I went on. So I'm always, you know, let's get an extra pair of shoes. You know, maybe we're going to Hawaii, but you never know when there could be a snowstorm. So we're just going to go ahead and put those boots in there as well. You know, you're just always, right? I'm always kind of overpacking. I mean, it's just been my life. My wife, Megan, has always made fun of me. Oh, my goodness, why are you bringing all this stuff? I'm like, just wait. One day you'll be glad I did. And all that changed in October. In October, um, uh, as I've shared before, my uh, daughter, uh, Shawnee, and I, we went on a, on a pilgrimage in Germany, um, and it all changed with that trip. And the reason why it changed is not because I was no longer afraid I was going to need something. No, that, that, that didn't change. I was still very frightened of that. It, it changed. Why? Because I knew that I was going to have to carry everything. 
right? For miles every day, I was going to be carrying whatever it was that I packed. And so that changed it. I brought two pairs of clothing, right? One that I wore, one that was in my backpack. You know, I mean, I limited everything. I got it all down. I'm very proud of myself. I got it all down to 17 pounds, which was pretty good. A week-long trip. It was literally a third of what I usually do. Usually, I am between 50 and 51 pounds. It's always like, all right, well, let's see if I'm going to have to stuff some of my stuff in Megan's suitcase. All right, we're good. 50. So 17 pounds. I didn't know how it would work out, but... But one of the first things I knew is that I didn't have to check it, which I loved, right? I just threw it up there in the old overhead compartment, so no worries whatsoever. You know, I didn't have to wait for it. I didn't have to worry that I was going to be, you know, missing any of that. But what really, where I really noticed is that when we got to the airport then, you know, and I, and I just, you know, I strapped it on and I was leaving. I saw all the people, A, who were waiting at the baggage claim. I was like, deuces, guys. And we kept going. But then here's what's also great. You know, there they are and they're trying, they're having to wait. Maybe they have all this stuff, you know, and they're waiting for the elevator, you know, or they're trying to get it on the escalator, you know, when you try to do that, you know. I want to fall. And so you do all this, right? It took me about two seconds to all of a sudden make fun of them, even though I'd been living like that for like 49 years. And so, you know, and so, I mean, it was incredible. And towards the end of the trip, I said to my daughter, I am never going to bring a suitcase, not even a carry-on with roller. I'm only going backpack from now on. Four months later, <laughs> Megan and I and a, and a group of friends were going for a, a week-long trip and I, I was like, this was just a few weeks ago, and I was like, oh, my goodness. It was a cold place we were going to. I mean, that stuff is heavy. I was like, man, I got to, and I, man, I mean, it takes me this long to forget a resolution. I was like, no, I should just bring, but finally, and it was literally the day of, I said, no. So strong. We're taking the backpack. So that's what I did. Now, it wasn't 17 pounds, but it wasn't 50 pounds either. It was definitely less, you know, less than that. So I, I was able to get it. I think it was around 32 or something like that. And so I, I put it on, and we got to our destination, and it had been snowing all day uh, uh, when, when we got there. And in order to get to our place where we were staying, it was up this hill, and there were cobblestones. And it had turned into, like, this slush. And so everybody who brought a suitcase, you know, hey, it has rollers. It'll be great. Oh, no. It was like a snowplow. It's just piling up on these suitcases as they're trying to go. And the wheels are getting all mucked and mired, you know, because of everything else. And it's just all this. It was probably about a half a mile. It felt like much longer for them. But meanwhile, I had on the backpack. No problem, guys. Who's laughing now? Because they were making fun of me for the backpack. See, this is the image that came to my mind as I thought about what Jesus said about not being weighed down. Because the truth is this. When we, when we begin to place all of our faith and hope and trust on physical things rather than on God, that means that we end up carrying those things with us. So you see, when, you're, when you have a suitcase and you're worried and you're like, I know what's going to help me. I'm going to watch MSNBC or I'm going to watch Fox. That's going to be helpful. And so we have to put a television onto our suitcase. And of course, what happens is that we watch it for an hour, three hours, and all of a sudden we feel less actually full of peace. So we need to get an even bigger television um, uh, and watch it for even longer. So it only gets bigger and we're, we're carrying, but it's not too bad, right? TVs are kind of thin these days. So we're, you know, it's okay. We can do this. 
And then, and then we begin to get nervous and anxious, and we think, oh, my goodness, all right, let's look, let's look at our bank accounts. Let's look at our bank accounts. That's going to give us some kind of safety and security. And we, and we look at it and say, okay, good, that looks good. We're going, to be, we're going to be okay. But here's the thing. When, when, when money begins to take that role in your life, then all of a sudden you begin to feel it. So basically what happens is it becomes like, it becomes like real money. And that's not light, right? My father, uh, uh, I don't want to go all into this, but for a while he was into silver. And uh, when he decided to sell it, he said, you know, the hardest thing about selling it is, is you can't really ship it because it's just so heavy. So, so we, though, when, when, when money takes its place, you know, we're putting in gold bars, we're putting in silver bars, it's getting a little bit, you know, it's getting a little bit heavier, but we're, you know, we think, yeah, you know what, I think we can do this, I think we've got this, and so we're, so we're beginning to carry a little bit more, and then, you know what, something happens, and all of a sudden, physically, we don't feel great, so where do we go immediately? We go to WebMD. Now, that's just on a monitor, but have you ever thought, I wonder, if you were to print off every time I've ever gone on any of these health websites, how big of a ream of paper would you have? Because you're carrying that. You may not know it, but you're carrying it. So you're throwing that and that's in here, you know, and then that's over here, you know, and you've got these suitcases and now you're really beginning to get heavy, right? Because you're carrying all these things and then you think, oh my goodness, I know this person's actually gonna solve it. This pastor, this politician, and they're gonna solve it. And so now you're throwing a 150 or 250 pound person onto your suitcase and you think, oh my goodness, I'm just gonna carry this because I need these things. I need all of this for life to go on. But now the good news is you're a Christian, so you also put your Bible on top. Because it's not that you don't believe in that. It's just that you've added it to everything else. And most of us carry the exhaustion of needing all of these things for us to ever be able to feel at peace or secure. Because we have placed all of our energy and hope on that which is seen, which is temporary, rather than that which is unseen, which is eternal. If you aren't fasting anything during Lent, then perhaps you might want to start doing this over the next few weeks. Maybe when that impulse, when you are afraid to turn on the television, to turn on or look at your bank account, to go on WebMD or some other health site, to pick up a drink, maybe this time during this season, you simply say, I'm not going to carry anything else. And every time that you consider in the midst of fear or ambiguity or insecurity, rather than doing any of those things, maybe you simply remember the words of Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. May it be so. Amen.